here we are, not in any Motel 6, none of that stuff, just just at home. No, we're not Motel 6, and we're not actually locked down. I'm beginning to think that part of the language we use about this is what determines our emotional response to us. And, and we've been using the term lockdown. I've been using the term lockdown. Nobody I know is actually locked down. No, not like they I are mean, in not, not, not Italy like, or somewhere, or Greece. No, nobody is – well, or, or, or the – places in China where they sealed people into their homes. Mm. Um, by and large, it's a, it's, it's a term that makes it sound more uh, totalitarian than it really is. <laughs> more dramatic, certainly. More Whereas dramatic. My understanding is that and, in Greece, because uh, when I was at Clarion West, we had a student from Greece, and she's been saying that you know they have to actually you know, message the government when they're leaving their home, or they were until recently having to, so to say, I will be leaving at 8.20 a.m. to walk my dog, and I will be home by 9.20 a.m. kind of thing. They had to do that every time they left the house. So that's pretty full on. And, you know. that That's that's that's, that's getting very close to uh, uh, to one of the stories that occurred to me when, when this thing came up and I was talking to somebody about, of course everybody was talking about plague literature and that sort of thing. One that came to mind was Ray Bradbury's story, The Pedestrian. Yep. Uh, classic story, very short. It's barely in 1950, I think it was published. Uh, it's barely science fiction at all today because it happened to me. That that actual story happened to me when I was out walking mm -hmm. a long time ago. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you how long ago it was. It was the evening of the moon landing. <laughs> I was living in a suburb. I was much younger than I am now. Uh, but I decided uh, – while this thing was going on, it actually took hours on television to go for a walk. And going for a walk in a suburb, which it should have been a hint to me, did not bother to build sidewalks <laughs> at all. They assumed in building this that you would use your automobile to go everywhere. So I was walking along basically what should have been a sidewalk, um, and a police car pulled up beside me and, and, and said, very politely, can we help you? Has your car broken down? <laughs> and I said, no, I'm just out walking. I actually went out for a walk because I wanted to see what the neighborhood looked like, utterly deserted. Yeah, yeah. And as I was walking by the homes, it was exactly what Bradbury describes in the story. You look through the windows of homes and everybody is glued to the TV yeah. set. That's all they're doing. Uh, and the police, when I told the police I was out for a walk, they hesitated, gave me a rather odd look. <laughs> and said, Fine. They but I, for a moment there, because even then I knew that Bradbury story. For a moment there, I thought I'm going to be I'm going to be hauled in for failure to watch TV. <laughs> that that feels depressingly possible. Yes. Well, one of the things that that made me think of, and and all the other stories that, I'm, I'm, that, that that we call up when we're talking about this horrible situation we're in, is. How do you know when you finally landed in one of the dystopias you used to read about? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? it? I guess it's when you can pick, imagine in your mind's eye that situation, overlap it like two photographs digitally, and if they look the same, then they are the same. You know, uh, I've started. I was saying last night to somebody that you look around now, and what it feels like is someone was finally for the first time shown. Um, was it Stanley Kubrick's movie? Uh, was it the, the what was that one? The the Second World War one with the bomb. Oh, the, how I stopped worrying and learned to love the atomic bomb, or whatever it was, maybe. Oh, 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 oh Doctor, Doctor Strange. Strange yeah, the, uh, and yeah. what they didn't realize was that it wasn't a, a documentary. And I kind of feel like we live in a world where you know, Doctor Strange Love was a documentary. Um, it begins to seem like that, and it would be interesting to show a film like that, or. Uh, something like uh, one of the more forgotten films, one of the stranger films, which nobody knows about, and I've never seen it mentioned, was called The World, the Flesh, and the Devil, which starred, of all people, Harry Belafonte. Okay, that rings a bell. It's a, it rings a bell because technically, at least in the movie credits, it is the only film based on M.P. Shields' novel, The Purple Cloud. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, except they basically threw out everything in the novel except the last three people on Earth. But most of the movie, and it's not really a very good movie, a lot of the movie consists of walking through deserted sure, streets in sure. New York uh, and the experience that uh, and, and eventually you find one other human being and eventually uh, maybe you find a third human being. The, the, the movie turned it into a kind of odd thing because 
Harry Belafonte runs into a uh, a young white woman, and then a, a middle-aged white guy shows up. So there's a kind of racial yeah, tension yeah. that's built into it. But the point is, the experience portrayed in most of that movie is walking through empty streets, and that's what we can do now. Yes, you can. It's very true. They're getting less empty here. Uh, I was reading a very encouraging article about Vietnam. I don't know if you, if you heard about the Vietnamese situation with the coronavirus. No, not really. Well, basically, it's, it's, a city, it's a country, what, 30, 50, 70 million, something like that? And apparently, like in January, when they had their first cases, they went, this is really serious. We have no medical system to treat this. So what we're going to do is we're going to cancel all international flights, all domestic flights. We're going to shut the borders. They instructed every pharmacist who sold cold and flu medication to report the people who bought it to the authorities. They ended up they ended mm. up putting uh, uh, quarantining a hundred thousand people, uh, and now they're at the stage where they're opening up completely across the entire time. They had three hundred reported cases and no deaths. Wow, that's impressive. You know, and someone said but there was a question like, do, you know, are they on, under reporting the instances? And it looks like it's not. So. Not this is a very science fictional conversation, well, but yeah. Well, it is a science fictional conversation because it's dealing with an issue which is central to science fiction, which is competence. I think one of the reasons people look at a film like Dr. Strangelove, which I watched not too long ago. Uh, it's one of those things where I find myself kind of hypnotically watching it every time it's on because it's it, it looks like a documentary visually. But what Dr. Strangelove does, and very few science fiction movies have done, is portray uh, a kind of worldwide uh, – it's, it's not – well, it, it ends with a worldwide catastrophe. But it portrays a tense situation in which the government does not react with anything resemble competent, resembling competence. Yeah. The science fiction myth is that if something like this happens, it shows up in, in the plague movies, it shows up in the invasion of Earth movies. You know, uh, Will Smith is going to get into his uh, – spaceship and and, and uh, thanks to Jeff Goldblum feed uh, some kind of a virus into the alien's computer in Independence Day. Well, there's always in the science fictional version of things, somebody competent. This, Heinlein may have done this to us. There's, a, fa there, there's a, a, a kind of faith that competence will out. And one of the things we're learning when a disaster like this really happens is that incompetence has sort of got the edge in many countries. <laughs> I, th I think there's some truth to that. I mean, certainly there is a very solid competence porn aspect to science fiction. And yeah. certainly uh, it's a critical part of it if you look through through the history of the field in the sense that, I mean, the, 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 if you like the classic question in science fiction, surely is what if, right? What if, what next? Yeah, sure. And then the mission of the, the stories quite often is to answer that question. And it's not really a terribly rewarding story if the answer to what if is we all fell in a heap and died the end, right? Nobody really wants to read that. Exactly. So you have to come up with your answers. Uh, I mean, it's not all science fiction, but it's a hell of a lot of it has that as its as its core. Uh, you know, what, what particularly I mean that when you get to the point where you have a concept of the future and you have a concept that the future is going to be different from today then asking mm -hmm. what if what next becomes a really logical, reasonable question. And that that's why, you know, we have all of this stuff. Well, I think one of the one of the novels which has again come come to mind, and, and I'm I'm trying to think in terms of, you know, relating this whole situation not to the obvious science fiction novels, but one of the ones that comes to mind specifically in regard to this question is an is Asimov's novel, The Gods mm -hmm. Themselves. Which is in many ways – well, it's, it's problematical in the way all Asimov novels are problematical. But its quotation, the title and the title of each section of the novel, I think, is taken from a quotation which I think is from Friedrich Schiller. Against stupidity, the gods themselves contend in vain. Yeah. Well, what happens is you have a, a kind of a dual universe and energy is being exchanged and a, a bright scientist realizes that this is going to result in a universal cataclysm. Yeah. But the, the incompetent governments and the incompetent scientists in charge and so forth and so on um, are fighting against them. So one of the myths of science fiction is kind of the, the lone cowboy genius scientist working against the, uh, the ones yeah. who are in yeah. charge, the, the, the establishment, in other words. Uh, the, the, the science fiction version of a cowboy is, is 
still the rogue scientist. And he's, he or she still shows up in the fiction quite a bit. Yeah. Actually, it's funny you, you mention um, Asimov because just today on, on the social media, our mutual friend and occasional guest on our podcast, James Bradley, shared an article from Eon magazine which asks the question, mm-hmm. if history was more like science, would it predict the future? And my immediate response was, I reckon Isaac Asimov wrote a whole, wrote a whole string of novels based on that basic idea, didn't he? It was certainly what, yeah, it, it was it was an idea which, of course, that's what he called psychohistory, yeah. and it's an idea that was not entirely his. I mean, before that, there had been, and I'm sure uh, James, the article James is referring to must be this. There were speculative historians like Oswald mm-hmm. Spengler. Uh, Spengler, for example, I don't know if he influenced Asimov, but I know for uh, fairly certainly that he influenced James Blish in yeah. the Cities yeah. in Flight kind of thing. There was uh, Van Vogt, who's who made up his own kind of historical science, which he called Nexialism, <clears throat> which if you, if you, if you sort of deconstruct the word, doesn't mean anything at all. It means what we now call interdisciplinary studies. But if you recall in one of those novellas that uh, later went to make up the voyage of the Space Beagle, the brilliant Nexialist scientist is able to figure out exactly how this creature, which of course would later become H.R. Giger's alien, exactly how this creature is going to behave by figuring out what stage of uh, historical social development the creature comes from. In other words, there was the idea that history was cyclical and therefore predictable, and the, the idea that history was a science <clears> is, is an idea. Not only Asimov in, inherited that, but uh, but certainly Blish and uh, probably any number of other writers we could think of. Fair enough. I was just wondering, my mind wandered, and I apologize. Maybe it was the mention of the Voyage of the Space ah. Beagle. Uh, I was suddenly thinking, because my, my, my daughter last night made coffee cake for the first time, and I was thinking, uh-huh. well, everyone's making sourdough. Well, we look back, back in, you know, sort of 2020 as the sourdough period. Is it the sourdough crisis? Cause everybody got locked in and made sourdough. I've never tried to make sourdough. And every time I've smelled that yeast mixture, because other people have, I'm thinking, I don't even want to think that something that smells like this is going to be that delicious <laughs> in a few weeks. Anyway, enough. How long is it since you've read any A.E. Van Vogt, by the way? I haven't, re- I mean, I read some, I reckon Tachyon put out a Van Vogt collection 10, 20 years ago. And I don't reckon I've read a word of him since then. I am trying to remember. I When I was, uh, I, I know I reread some Van Vogt when I was trying to put together some of those Library of America volumes. And it turns out, you know, his major work was in, in the 40s. Yeah. And then I've probably reread some bits and pieces since then. I don't think I've reread a whole Van Vogt uh, thing, but... The, the thing that struck me as interesting at the time, oh, I know, I know, I reread a couple of Van Vogt stories when I was um, reading Alec Navalny's sure, sure. uh, book about astounding because I was I was curious as to how why Van Vogt wasn't in that, and I know Alec has been asked that question. Um, I think that I don't know if he's readable today. Um, no. On the on the one hand, I think that there's a sense of just headlong adventure in his stories that one thing happens after another. Uh, after another, it's like um, it's it's like watching the Fifth Element, you know, where just things keep happening at <laughs> you. Yeah. And individually, individually, the pace never uh, flags. I, I remember reading um, Slan and the World of Nolay, but I think by today's standards, we expect something to at least make a modicum of sense. <laughs> That's a big call, isn't it? I've read some science fiction that's come out more recently, and I'm not convinced it made that much sense. No, I, I, I think that Van Vogt was a healthy influence. I'm guessing, without having asked him, and he can correct me if I'm wrong, I'm guessing that Lobby Tidhar likes Van Vogt. <laughs> yeah, I reckon that's probably true. I, I can see Lavie <laughs> doing his version of Slan. It would be quite interesting. I think I, it, it would be fascinating, and and I think that that notion of uh, just you know nonstop action is, in a sense, the Van Vogt tradition of that kind of action is more fun than the older, let's say, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs sure. tradition, which was also pretty much nonstop action. But 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 Van Vogt's was much more colorful and much more inventive and much more uh, uh, lunatic. I suspect that uh, that Phil Philip K. Dick. Liked Van Vogt. Yeah. I'm 
I think I remember reading somewhere that yeah, he did, but I'm that. not sure. Yeah. So tell me, it is half past May of 2020. Uh, we are all part of the science fiction community, uh, and a number of our sta- normal you know, science fiction community things aren't happening, but some are. And one thing that is happening here and there is awards. And this month, like the end of this month, the 30th of May or whatever it is, is the day you have to get your World Fantasy Award ballot in. And I was preparing mine yesterday. Have you commenced this community responsibility, Mr. Wolf? I, I have, I have begun. Uh, I have, I have started it. Uh, what I do with this and I, I try not to wait until the last minute. Yep. Because as soon as I put together a ballot, uh, and I put together my ballot probably the way a lot of people do by looking at the list of what I've read and then looking at uh, the locus recommended reading list because that's, for one thing, an easy way to make sure that something actually yeah. appeared in 2019 and an easy way to uh, determine whether it's – well, actually, short story or novel is not that big a distinction because I think the world fantasy category is simply shorter fiction. Yeah, it's kind of really annoying – uh, th- that side of things, because yes, the World Fantasy Award does the up to 10,000 words as short fiction, then 10,000 to whatever it is, let's say 40,000 as longer fiction and then novel. Yeah. But, uh, apart from sort of sussing out the categories like that, uh, it's, it's a, it's a kind of comforting thing to do. I mean, putting together a World Fantasy ballot, we, you know, we, all put together Hugo nominations pretty much before everything fell apart. But putting together a ballot for a convention that you know you're not going to go to um, uh, is still a comforting sense of things getting back to normal. It makes me think about, oh, I remember I read that novel back when the world was sane. (laughs) Oh, that was eight months ago, but nevertheless. It wasn't sane then either. No, it wasn't sane then either. It was just different. So I don't know if it's appropriate, but I'll say my personal, my personal pick on my ballot for best novel is the 10,000 Doors of January. There are others that I would be very eager to see on the ballot and would happily support, but that's my pick by Alex E. Harrow. Well, I have, uh, I had that on my ballot as well, and I had uh, uh, Brightness Long Ago on my ballot. Yep. The guy Gabriel um, K. Novel. Yeah. Is there a sense, uh, and, and this is, well, I, mean, I don't know what else I had on my ballot. I'm trying to remember uh, very quickly. I think there were a couple of uh, important novels, but let, let, let me let me take two, put two categories of novels together. You put together um, the Guy Gabriel K. Novel, which is brilliant, and it's what we always expect from Guy Gabriel K. Uh, I like the Michael Swanwick novel, The Iron Dragon's Mother. Uh, which is, again, brilliant in what we expect from Michael Swanwick, and in that case, completing a long, uh, stretched-out uh, trilogy. And then we have uh, Alex Harrow, who is a new writer. Uh, another novel I liked last year was The Bird King by um, G. Willow Wilson. Now, I would love people that I've known for years to get more awards. <laughs> On the other hand, on the other hand, I'm excited when a new writer like Alex Harrow, or a relatively new writer, I don't think G. Willow Wilson is as new in that sense as uh, as Alex Harrow is. But let me, young, younger writers writing different kinds of things, uh, getting on the ballot. Yeah. And I, I, I always find that exciting. I, I One of the things I do like about the World Fantasy Ballot, as I understand it, is that the the titles you list are not preferential. Yeah. That, that's that's my understanding as well. So yeah. in other words, so so in other words, I I I can uh, put down five books, and I think I came up with five. I'm not sure what they were, what the last one was, and feel good if any of them win the award. And of course, given my history, usually none of them do. <laughs> but maybe well, this year okay. will be better. I, I, I've got my, the five novels that are on my ballot right now, and I mean, I suppose between now and when I send it in, it could change. But right now, there's The Ten Thousand Doors of January, which, is, as you say, is a fabulous debut novel. Uh, there's A Little Hatred by Joe Abercrombie, which I think, I mean, mm-hmm. he actually really is a pretty terrific novelist, and A Little Hatred is a different kind of book for him, I think. It, it, it changes the sort of the background of the whole first law world and all this kind of thing. It's really interesting, well done, so that's on my ballot. Then there's The yeah, Iron Dragon's yeah. Mother which I, by Michael Swanwick, which I agree is a fabulous book. Deep Light by Francis Harding. She's an, mm-hmm. a treasure of a, of a novelist. 
and does wonderful work. And Guy K, uh, with Brightness Long Ago. Right now, those are my five. Probably, even in my own mind, the mildly surprised submission there is Gideon the Ninth, which I think a lot of people would expect, like, actually expect to mm-hmm. make on the ballot to be truthful. But, you know, I'm kind of like, these are the ones that, that, that sort of resonated the most for me at the moment, I think. Well, and the other question, I mean, Gideon the Ninth is, as many people have pointed out, equally eligible for science fiction and fantasy ballots. Uh, I mean, there are people I, I, I've talked to who've, who've read it as a kind of, uh, you know, punk uh, science fiction novel. It has science fiction elements well, in it. Undeniably. Uh, undeniably. But then what you begin to find is with some things, right, that they are... They're, they're malleable, they're variable, they don't, they don't break down simply anymore. So for example, in the novella category for me, The Gurkha and the Lord of Tuesday mm-hmm. by Saad Hussain is one of the best novellas I read all year. And I'm biased and all those other things. And you've got to ask yourself, is it science fiction or fantasy, right? Because there's an AI, there's nanotech, mm-hmm. and there's a big magic gin, right? Doing magic-y stuff, right? Right. So which is it, or does it matter? I don't think it matters anymore from a literary point of view. We used to get in these arguments uh, back when science fiction and fantasy were more or less separate things. But going going way back to prehistory, when the SFWA still stood only for the science fiction writers of America, and there there are still people of that generation. I shouldn't be saying that generation. That's my <laughs> generation. Uh, who believe that science fiction needs to be segregated from fantasy, yeah. and the argument being made back then. Um, and I still hear it made occasionally today, is that if you introduce science fiction into essentially a fantasy story, in other words, if you have uh, ghosts and demons, but spaceships and robots, the spaceships and robots don't turn it into science fiction because fantasy is fantasy. If there is impossible stuff going on, sure. in it, that I, controls I know the argument. On the other hand, on the other hand, if you have a science fiction novel which is going along in pure Asimovian terms and suddenly a ghost appears, that one ghost turns the whole thing into a fantasy novel. Yeah. And you can't have it both yeah. ways. And look, I'm yeah. sure that there are listeners out there, and a big shout out to you all, who would say, hang on, but that's just science fantasy. We've had that before. Stop being so mm-hmm. saying it's a new thing. First of all, yeah, we did. Second of all, the science fantasy is always kind of a bit different. Um now that I think about it, like if if I could stand the pain, Gary, and I've got a low pain threshold in 2020, mm-hmm. I might go back and take another look at some of the work by someone like Jack Chalker, right? Jack Chalker mm-hmm. in his Well of Souls books and everything else actually feel very kind of pre pre prefiguring-y for some of the stuff you see today. It was it genuinely did have odd weird mm. blends of science fiction and fantasy. Your dear friend Phil Farmer did the same kind of thing. Certainly. And Ch- Chalker's work always felt like it was in the same clade, if you like, of fiction as the, the work of farm or that kind of work of farmers. And well, I, I now think, that I uh, think about it, yeah. I'd probably put Levi Tidhar in that, that clade. I think that would be entirely reasonable. And I think the, the one thing that they have in common, I mean, when you mention Levi Tidhar, what I'm thinking of is really a, a a novel of his like The Violent mm-hmm. Century, uh, more than the, the recent Arthurian thing, as much as I like the Arthurian thing. But there is no doubt a sense of playfulness in all the writers you've mentioned. And it's a playfulness that, to some extent, uh, addresses the expectations of the audience. And I know this because I did, I did spend a lot of time over many years talking to Philip Jose Farmer. And he was messing with our heads. Yeah. That's what he wanted to do. He he wanted to write things where you would uh, – it would be partly historical fiction, partly fantasy, partly horror fiction, partly uh, science fiction. And 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 he also enjoyed writing um, long series of novels in which you weren't really certain what it was. I mean the entire Riverworld series doesn't actually turn into science fiction until the rather unsatisfactory <laughs> latter couple of volumes. Yeah, okay. Yes. So to some extent, I, and, and when people say we have science fantasy, uh, that's a, a kind of uh, a circular argument. I mean, we have science fa- fantasy because science fantasy was a term we invented to account for writers who were doing these transgressive but things. But we don't use that kind of terminology. and We don't have a, a piece of replacement term- terminology anymore. Right now, uh, we don't use that term. Right. And people, you know, I mean, 
it's all very well to say that I mean, some some might. I know you're not. Some people might say the term's still there; it still exists. So just because some people don't, you know, aren't smart enough to use it, which is silly because they are, but anyway, mm. uh, just because people don't use it doesn't mean it's not there, and that's what we should call it. And you go, no, it's because I think the people who are doing what they do now, when Assad Hussein is doing what he's doing, when Hamson uh, Muir is doing what she's doing. Doing what she's doing, they're, yeah. they're not in their heads doing science fantasy, right? They're doing something else. I don't think so. And I, I think the other problem with the term science fantasy is that we we use it in, in malleable ways. We don't use it in the same way. Gene Wolfe uh, referred to what he was talking about as science fantasy, but he picked up his notion of the term from Jack Vance, which had nothing to do with the materiality of uh, science versus magic in a book. It had to do with the affect of fantasy in a far future science fiction environment. Uh, so that when you read, for example, the book of the new sun and its many sequels, uh, yes, it's all science fictional from a conceptual point of view, but it reads very much like yeah, fantasy. Yeah. Uh, and, and Vance, uh, Vance wrote some very, uh, uh effective fantasies that were pure yeah. fantasies as well, obviously, the later Lioness novels and that sort of thing. But uh, what he was doing with the Dying Earth series, which I still contend is one of the most influential series of stories ever in science fiction, when you think of the writers who have, who have picked up from it, um, that he was playing with, he was being playful. He was playing with how you can use science fiction mechanisms to get to a fantasy landscape and a fantasy feel. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yes. And I think a lot of people are doing that now. And I, and I guess that's what ends up, you know, to circle around a little bit on a world fantasy ballot, right? Which gives a little bit of a core for this. Mm -hmm. And actually, it touches on another con part of things that you and I were talking about, because readers, we actually, or listeners, we do actually talk when you're not here. Um, mm -hmm. which is the life achievement category, right? That's always difficult. And it's genuinely difficult for all sorts of reasons, because on one, the one point, there's really no clear criteria, are there? I mean, you kind of believe it's like some sort of be later in their career. There's got to be achievement that you can sit there and go, huh, achievement. Mm -hmm. Um, and then they've probably got to be over 65 or something rough. I mean, that's a soft rule. There was never a, a really rule. legal cutoff. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Stephen King uh, got but, it when he was again, like 17 time, or something. So, you know. Well, yeah, Stephen King. Yeah. That's the point. I mean, every time you, it's, there are guidelines, but every time you look at one of the guidelines, there's somebody Outside on the list of recipients who doesn't fit. So I think we, well, I, I, I've, every year we get, we have this conversation and I'm going to bet you actually, if mm. somebody out there, cause it won't be us cause we're not going to do this, were to go back through some of the 419 other episodes of the Cruise Street podcast and pull out the episodes mm. where we talk about the World Fantasy Life Achievement Award, which probably we do every year that we have, when we have to fill out a ballot. At this year, So there yeah, probably are, are nine other episodes in the same, in that, in that, those episodes, I'm willing to bet that I put forward the same name. Every single year, Gary. And the name I put forward is and that Howard Waldrop. Howard? Howard who? As he's known the, from the, his the, better the, collections. The, the, the great and hap happily not late Howard Waldrop, who probably isn't working a whole lot these days, or isn't publishing a whole lot, certainly, but wrote some remarkable work, particularly in the 80s and 90s, and deeply deserves rec you know, recognition. So he, and also deserves it also deserves recognition in in, in terms of the, of the conversation we've just been having. He was a very playful, experimental writer who knew the materials of the genres and knew how to mix them up. And he was doing that. You're right in the '60s yeah. uh, on a fairly regular basis. And then because I guess you know, sort of young people have this habit of getting older. Gary, people who I don't necessarily think of as older people are older, and are now in that space. So I mean, Charles Vess is very mm -hmm. much in a life achievement kind of space. and, and it, I'm sure he appreciates your pointing out that he's getting older. But, well, um, all I can say is to try and be kind and say, it is happening to all of us, at least those of us who are still listening, right? Are, are still getting older every day. But um, he's also had a major part of his, you know, major achievements in the last five years or so. Oh, Most notably the, the, Guin. the Le Guin Earthsea volume that he did for Saga Press, where, where he did a great deal of illustration and art for it. So, I mean, I think hugely deserving. So he would, he would be in my mind as well. I think, I think, and this surprised both of us yesterday, but it's, but I think it's fair. Liz Hand. Liz Hand is in that space. And I totally, totally mm -hmm. would be thinking of, of her as well. You know, um, same for Eleanor Arneson. 
who's been writing wonderful fiction, maybe possibly more science fiction than fantasy, but wonderful science fiction or fiction for decades and would mm-hmm. be a excellent, excellent uh, choice. I think we'd, I think we had mentioned Molly Gloss, yes. who I was, I believe had a collection of stories out last year and who has been around and a mentor to major figures in the field. Um, I think one of the things that was uh, originally conceived of, and this was actually explained to me once by, uh, by David Hartwell, who did the conceiving, is that at the beginning they wanted to be able to honor people before it was yeah. too late. Um, there was something, I guess, that, um, that haunted a lot of science fiction fans, um, including David. And that was giving, I believe, um, the Grandmaster Award, I believe, to Van Vogt when he wasn't really aware that he was getting yeah, it to yeah. that extent. And I think they wanted to avoid that. I think they wanted to be able to recognize people who were up in years. And to some extent, they wanted to recognize people, I'm, I'm going back to the early years of the World Fantasy Awards, whose contributions may have been years or decades yeah, yeah. ago. Uh, they wanted to recognize people like Manly Wade Wallman, who certainly was a deserving uh, contender, but who I think hadn't been very active before he, he won the award. Now I think we've, you know, it's, so it's no longer a race to think of who are the oldest people who haven't got one yet, which is kind of a cynical way of looking about it. <laughs> and you start thinking about what kinds of bodies of work should be honored. And the other thing that's confusing well, not confusing, but it's it's worth keeping in mind with the Life Achievement Award is the role of editors and publishers. And um, uh, I, I think uh, Ellen Asher, for example, got one. Didn't she? Maybe. For the, yeah. um, I believe so. So there are a lot of people who have contributed greatly to the field who are not authors. Terry um, Windling. Terry Windling is an excellent. Who, who I don't think has a Life Achievement Award. Her oft her her, her off time. Co-editor uh, Ellen Datlow does, but I do not believe that um, Terry does. And I would think she would be a sup- supremely deserving uh, nominee. I would think so. I mean, I'm, I've not put in a nomination for that yet because I need to go through the list of all the people who won them, and it's um, it's it's awkward to do that. I do think that there are cases, for example, I think last year when Jack Zipes, uh, a scholar uh, and an editor and translator of fairy tales, whose work has been enormously influential, but who's not a popular writer in the sense that anybody else says. Um, Miyazaki, uh, a filmmaker. Filmmakers yeah. were more or less outlawed from the early years of the World Fantasy Awards. But there are possibilities now that a Terry Gilliam could be a candidate. Ellen Kushner? Ellen Kushner should certainly, if she's not already no, got she does one, not. should she does be not. a candidate. Okay. Well, I would consider that she was in that sort of space. Our, our, I mean, that's, you know, our dear friend, uh, Di Gavriel Kay. If he doesn't, I mean, yeah, doesn't have one, hasn't been shortlisted to my knowledge yet. Not that they announced a shortlist, obviously, but would be a supremely worthy recipient. And you, I kind of, I feel like it should be inevitable, but you never know with that sort of thing. Well, it, that raises another important issue, which is the extent to which the World Fantasy Awards are, in fact, World Fantasy Awards rather than Anglo-American Fantasy Awards. Uh, uh, I, I do think that... Um, um, I think Murakami received a Best Novel Award for World Fantasy, but I don't think no. he's received a Life Achievement Award. Johanna Sinasala. Uh, so, Cindy Johanna I know, Sinasala. I know that, I know that Angelica Garodisher was, was recognized with a Life Achievement, mm-hmm. but I think Sinasala would also be a spectacular choice, and there, and there are others. We could go through naming names, but but it's 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 interesting that this is this this is sort of like this little ritual thing right now. It's like, oh, let's do this. I feel like it's being part of the community and committing to the fact that you know we're going to get through this and ha- have a next year. So we want to have done, you know, we you don't want to sort of go, oh, twenty twenty. That was the year when we just didn't get around to presenting, you know, world fantasy awards or locus awards or nebula awards or Hugo awards. They're they're going to happen. Even if everybody has to sort of put on tuxedo type t-shirts and sit in front of a zoom screen and, uh, to say, to say thank you, um, it'll, it'll still happen. And then we will roll around and be, be in place next year. Well, I mean, and, and, and to some extent I feel, uh, well, I never feel sorry for somebody who wins an award for heaven's sake. They won an award, but whoever wins an award this year is going to get it in the mail. 
at some point <laughs> next year, probably. Uh, but the last two well, categories, you right, so they're going to re- reconfigure this year's Hugo Hugo base to make it flat. Maybe that's oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, how, or maybe how it'll it be a homo, homo assembly <laughs> kit. Uh, you, you go pick up your Hugo at IKEA um, with little screwdrivers that come with it. <laughs> The other two categories, there are two categories in World Fantasy Awards we haven't mentioned, and they always yes. confuse me because I never know what to do with them. And that is special award professional and special award non-professional, yes. which means you have to have some industry insider knowledge to know which category these people belong it's in. It's true. And, and there's some guidance, I guess, in what's previous or who who or what, because there is a kind of almost like a what kind of element to it, uh, a who or what has been nominated in previous years. And the reason I say who or what is because generally it's the one cat, it's one of those categories where you need to say, I'm nominating, you know, Bob the Builder for putting up a wall. You need to be able to specify what it's for. It feels like you don't just yeah. say, I'm going to get, I reckon that Dave Smith should get the, 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 the uh, special award professional. And you're going, what, for what? And you're going, for being Dave. And you're going, that's not really a thing. It's got to be something. So for example, one right. that I would put forward that occurred to me yesterday, uh, and it's occurred to me before, but I think sometimes slips by and slip by in the past too. I would suggest Liza Tromby for Locust Magazine for editing and publishing Locust Magazine. For professional. yes, for professional. Well, see, that, that, and I, I, I completely agree with that, and I think there are publishers and editors um, who we know work in the industry, and Liza is. Pretty almost uniquely in the position of publishing a news magazine which exists both in print and online and has uh, a long tradition in the field. I think she definitely deserves it. And, you know, it's worth pointing out because for those who have been in the field so long that Locus is kind of like breathing, you know, it's like in the, in the, it's just a thing, Mm -hmm. right? That Liza has been keeping it alive for 11 years nearly now. So, you know, uh, she's had a long tenure as the the second editor of Locus. And, you know, that's worthy of recognition. And I think people sometimes, I think they used to, while Charles was alive, they would just look and go, well, Locus is a science fiction magazine. But, of course, it is equally a fantasy magazine, publishing fantasy news, fantasy interviews, fantasy coverage overall. So, you know, I think that would be be one appropriate... I think it would be an excellent uh, idea, and I, uh, I'm going to do that now that you've mentioned it. Not only because we work with Liza, but because it's 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 a unique achievement in the field. The question I've had is when I look at some of the past awards that are special, uh, special whatever it is, uh, non-professional, yeah, special, special special yeah. Well, okay. Initially, I was told. Now, I, I I'm very pleased at that category because I got one of them many years ago. Uh, but I got it for writing reviews, and oh, this is not whining. Yes, it is. I'm going to whine for a second. And a few years earlier, John Clute got one for doing the, exactly the same thing, except his said special award professional. Now, my question then became, well, is it because non-professional means you don't make money at it uh, or you don't make enough money at it? But then there are people who have got the non-professional thing who do make money, and I got paid for my reviews. So somebody finally explained to me that non-professional means the majority of your income does not come from your fantasy-related activity, and professional means that the majority of your income – now, the problem with that is who the hell knows what somebody's income do, is. Do you have to give someone your – what are those forms you Americans fill out, the WD-40 or whatever it is that you the, – the, the, the W Yeah, the, 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 the 1040 form, so you find out where yeah, your exactly, income Yeah, exactly. Yes. Could from. you please just break it down for me? Say, well, actually, in 2020, 72% of my income came from X. And actually, if that were the argument, Gary, right, that would be completely mm. wrong. Because in 2010, when I won you know, Special Award Professional or was given – Awarded, awarded. When I was awarded special award. Yeah, well, you won. No, you, I was, you're you awarded. It's a, there's no foot race here, right? Okay. But okay. there's no way that All most right. of my income came from editing that year. None at no. all. I got a day job, Gary. But, there, but nobody, nobody would have argued that you weren't a professional editor at that time. But then, but then, it's but clearly then, see, a professional job. I, I agree. I, I'm sorry. I'm, I can absolutely accept that. But then it still breaks down the point that you're, you're raising that other people have raised. Which is that it comes down to the breakdown of your income, not the professional or non-professional nature of what you're doing. 
It, it, made, it made no sense to me when it was explained <laughs> to me that way, and it still makes no sense to me today. My original thought was that the uh, Special Award Non-Professional was kind of world fantasy's way of recognizing what the Hugos call the fan categories. Yeah, but People who do things out of love and don't necessarily get paid for it. But, but that really but doesn't add then, up, does it, when you look at everything? It just does not add it doesn't, up. Doesn't it? And I'm looking at who's won and what they've won for, and there, there's just, frankly... I don't think this is a big call, Gary. No consistency at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, hey, what the heck? Um, I actually have, other, I have to th- try and work out what I'm, who, well not what, whom, whom I'm going to nominate for the, the, the for those categories. I'm not quite sure right now. And also I was sitting there scratching my head trying to work out who I'll nominate for, um, best artist for, for 2019. I kind of feel like, which, who, whose work particularly stood out, allowing that Ravina Kai is not eligible um, this year? Why is she not because eligible? Because she won last year. Oh, okay. So that's the that's the rule. Whoever won last year can't win two years in Which a row. Which is kind of it's, that also is, is weird as hell because you know st- uh, you know an author can win year after year after year in theory year for best year, novel, year. right? Right. But an artist can't, huh? I don't know where that rule comes from either. Uh, just... So an artist can't, and a, and neither of the special awards can win two right. years in a row. But everybody, every other category can. But two, I, I'm not even. Oh, anyway, who cares? We'll, we'll, we'll fill out a ballot, Gary, and get it done. Well, I mean, anyway, my my <laughs> argument to our listeners would be uh, to do what I'm doing: fill out as much of the ballot as you can comfortably fill out. If there are five slots, I printed out the thing, which you can email back or you can mail the snail mail back or whatever. You are not obligated to put down five titles in every category. Yeah. Uh, you are not obligated to go out and read a bunch of short stories that you think might be. You're not obligated to nominate your friends. You're not obligated to avoid nominating your friends. Um, and you're not obligated to put names in categories like special award, non-professional, where you have no idea what on earth that is supposed to be, <laughs> unless there's somebody that you know in the field that you just think <sighs> ought to be recognized because the bartender at, uh, you know, the bartender at ReaderCon was really good last year. We really need to find this topic for this episode. <laughs> we really do. Um, anyway, so... I think that nominating for the World Fantasy Awards might be the last 2020 award thing to participate in at a nomination level. I would expect Hugo voting to open soon, so we can get on to that. Uh, Hugo voting will actually be opening soon. The other major award which would have been given out this summer, the Shirley Jackson Award, is a juried award, and I don't know what's happening with yeah. that. The jury has was impaneled last fall, and I need to ask... Uh, I guess either a jury member or Brett Cox, who I think is the chairman of the yeah. board, how these awards are going to be announced and delivered and sure. what's going to happen. Can I just um, say for, for, for the Hugos, right? I, I mean, let, let, let's not be polite about it, at least for this episode. If, dear listener, you've made it this far through the Crude Street podcast for the, the May the 17th recording, episode 420, and if, you know, you've enjoyed yourself, God damn it, consider voting for us for the Hugo Awards. There you go. Absolutely, you should do that. And furthermore, if you do, we'll consider nominating you for special award non-professional as world fantasy. Um, what for? What for best ballot in a supporting category? <laughs> best ballot in a supporting role? I don't know. It's, uh, it's, I mean, people say people in other fields say that our uh, field is 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 obsessed with awards. We are themselves. a little bit overly and, garlanded, and, and, aren't we? <laughs> Well, there's a bit of it, and there are awards. There are awards that you and I haven't even talked about. That uh, I don't know. I don't know anything about what's going to happen this year with the Galactic Spectrum Awards, for example. Um, there are hard SF awards that people give out. There are awards. I mean, every every couple of months, I read Locus, and I find out there's another award I didn't know about. Oh, they know. start them up. People uh, start up new ones. People start. Anyway, up it's ones. just to baffle older people, you know. It, 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 that's what it does. It's what it does. I mean, I'm, 
and 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 just to, just to keep us even further off balance, the awards that we thought we knew what they were aren't those awards anymore. <laughs> they become something otherwise. Yes, I, I understand um, because because some of them are more astounding than they used to be, and some of them are more astounding than they used to be. Someone somewhere just kind of elsewhere or something. Who even knows what that one is now? I'm I'm going to keep thinking of that one as the tip tree. I think that was mad. Um. Well, yeah, I, I don't know if there are any more renamings. Are there any? Not right well, now. Well, the Hugo right. is still. Oh yes, well, no. they, they're the never Hugo... going to rename the Hugo, Gary. They will never rename the Hugo. I will bet you they'll never rename the Hugo. And you know why? It's too hard. Right. It's too hard to change the name. Well, it was. You're absolutely right. They didn't rename the World Fantasy Award. They simply redesigned the physical yeah, and, award. And, look, and, and hey, uh, the fair John enough, w. too. They, they had good reason to do it. I, to- I, I totally, to between you and me and the thousand or so people who may ultimately listen to this, I probably still like the, the original award more. I feel kind of some sort of affection towards it in its, all its hideousness, but I totally embrace the change. I think that made sense and was good. Um, well, yeah, the formal term was, was the Howard. Yeah. And the Hugo was for, as, as I understand it, for a long time, the Hugo was only an informal term. Until it was adopted by yeah. the World Science Fiction and Society at some the, the, point. The main thing is, to, and, and how how it never got adopted yeah. by World Fantasy as an official term. The, the main thing for changing the, the, the name of the Hugo is it would take three years, three or four years to do. A lot of the yeah. name changes. I mean, my, you know, some are like my understanding is that changing the Campbell Award, Award in brackets not a Hugo to the Astounding Award in brackets not a Hugo was something that the award you know owners had been planning on doing anyway. And mm-hmm. the Tiptree instance, it's a committee that meets and they just can do that. And then, and they should, it's their right. Yeah. Um, that's their right. But for something like the, the uh, Hugo, it's like, you got to have a business meeting, you got to have an argument, you got to put through a proposal, then you got to vote on it, and you rock up another year later and vote on it again. And then the third year you rock up and have a bit of a think. I, I don't, there are no there are no fast changes to, to Hugo. Back that I know. I mean, Gernsback was was, was a clearly uh, a, a cheap editor, I guess. I, I I don't know anything about his personal life, but I think you know you can always explain. And it doesn't say the Hugo Gernsback Award no. either. It's it's a first name. You could say it's named after Hugo Cabret. <laughs> I, mean, it, 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 I don't think that would be very you know. convincing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't think that. Very convincing. Just, just, just go see the Scorsese movie, and you'll find out what this award is about, <laughs> and possibly this episode of the podcast. Um, <laughs> but no, uh, I think the the it's changing the Hugo is is not like changing the others because a lot of the others you just have to persuade somebody, and they are more they're more likely to be changed because of social media campaigns and those kind of things where the others it's more difficult so anyway mm. since since we are slowly getting towards the end of the podcast and I've got a patio to sweep and 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 a ah. tablecloth to iron because the family are coming over for a barbecue this afternoon because it's the morning here uh let me ask you um what's written i well as, as a matter of fact what i'm grappling with right now and by grappling with meaning i'm trying to write a review of it and it's more difficult than i thought is something called the book of dragons which which is full of wonderful stories and so far that's all i've got to say about it so i'm trying to think of something smart to say about that there's a uh, there's a novella by Tim Powers, which is a lot of fun the first time he's been back to the anubis gates world yeah that's world. the one air in the title isn't it this is this is called the properties of rooftop oh, that air. That sounds nice. Yep, and it's a wonderful title. And Horobin, one of the things that's interesting about it, and this is a question I've heard asked, um, Anubis Gates came out, I think, in '82 or something, with Horobin the clown, who is yeah. a terrifying figure that runs gangs of uh, beggars and thieves in London, and sometimes deliberately maims them and disfigures them to make them look more pitiable. That's two years before Stephen King's It mm-hmm. came out. And there have been really horrible clowns before that. Uh, but you, you can't help but wonder if the current trend of really scary clowns may have started with Tim Powers rather than with King. Uh, it probably started before. Oh, it's, 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 it's always been around. Yeah. I mean, it's been around for 
centuries. They're actual horrible clowns in Victorian literature. There were scary clowns in Charles Finney's Circus of Dr. Lyle. But I'm just talking about the immediate kind of uh, the Pennywise uh, trope uh, in the 80s probably uh, was there for fantasy readers before it was there for King readers. If Prob- read probably, the so. probably so. The Inuba Skates is one of those terrific, you know, it, it really founded a version of cyberpunk that um, I, I, I was looking at the Inuba Skates a little bit when I was um, reading this novella. And it's it's really kind of a classic. Yeah, yeah. It is a great, it's a great book. I love that and, book. Yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it was enormous amounts and of fun. I, I'd have to sort of sit, sit there and have a think because um, I'm trying to work, work out whether it's my favorite Tim Powers book. I mean, I also have a great deal of love for the drawing of the dark, I must say. Actually, this is interesting because I read the Anubis Gates and then I um, was very enthusiastic. I read that I read Dinner at Deviant's Palace and I was talking to a friend of mine who read nothing but historical fiction. She had no interest in fantasy at all. And she's saying, Tim Powers, you mean the drawing of the dark? Because the drawing of the dark is also one of these alternate historicals. And she was in love with that novel. I'd never read it. I'd never even heard of it. Have you read it now? And so it was like, it was like the fourth or fifth Tim Powers novel yeah, I read. I love that book. I mean, and it's it's interesting because of its origin, of course. You know, because it was going to be one in a, a laser book series of novels about different incarnations of King Arthur through time. Right. Yeah. And and yeah, that that thing fell down. And I think it was Tim's book was the one that was was finished, and then he kind of. I I'm altered it a bit, but it's great. I love it. Right. Huge fun. And I, I never did read his uh, laser books. I think he wrote two or three yeah, of them, those, the, yeah. the Skies. Forsake the Sky and, sort of and uh, another one, yeah. But it's interesting that uh, when you look at groups of his novels, the Victorian novels, which technically follow the Anubis Gates, I was thinking the, the Anubis Gates pretty much ends before the Victorian era begins. <laughs> Um, and for that matter, so does the stress of her regard. So you've got, let's say, the, the British 19th century. You've got the Las Vegas, uh, Los Angeles things. As a novel, uh, maybe not in terms of fantastic invention or, or special effects or Baroque, just as a as a complex novel of character, Declare may be his best oh, novel. Oh, I love Declare. I do love that book. It's, it's just a... You know, um... That, that's why he says, Gary, he, he voted for it for the World Fantasy Awards. Uh-huh. It was my jury. Well, that was your yeah. jury. When, when I say I voted for, for it for the World Fantasy Awards, I mean I actually voted for it for the World Fantasy Awards. Not this nominating stuff. I actually voted. I was in the thing going, no. That one. Okay. We had such a year, my year, you know. Uh, in fact, uh-huh. so, there's a couple of years where there were ties. I mean, there was my year where we were declared tied with Galveston. And in all honesty, the other contender, Perdido Street Station, would have been worthy. And then the other year was when Mythigo Wood by Robert Holdstock tied with Bridge of uh-huh. Birds by Barry Hewitt. Both of which are terrific books. And particularly the Holdstock. Both of which are now classics. Which the Holdstock looks so prescient about what you see in contemporary fantasy right now. Genuinely. I think it's going to come out in that Tor Essentials line. Uh, later this year or something, I think it is, and I'm sh- I know it's in the Golan's Masterworks series, so it's readily available. Myth- and it remains yeah. a genuinely terrific book, timeless. It was, and 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 I think that uh, his well, his later novels were terrific too. But there was something inventive about Mythical Wood, and I think that um, and, and we talked a little bit that. About this, and one of these little mini podcasts, the one I did with Liz Williams. Do you find the same thing that you have a conversation and you're not sure when you're remembering the conversation which part of it was recorded? <laughs> but at any rate, a little maybe. But at any rate, there, there, there's there's a whole generation of writers, including I think Liz Williams and including Graham Joyce, uh, who were clearly part of that reinventioning of the English, reinventing the English landscape that followed on Mythical Wood. Yeah. It's true. It's very true. <sighs> and you know what you mean? What, when you, what, what you'll read after the ones you're reading? Because I'm, I'm reading. I'm, I'm well, reading. there's. Uh, I'm, I'm reading the third novel in Molly Tanzer's series of yeah. uh, Diabolist's Library. I think the trilogy is called, which is interesting because it's uh, it's very different from the first yeah. two. Um, it's the the first novel in the in the series 
was Creatures of Will and Temper, which was a gender-swapped version of the picture of Dorian Gray and a, a, a kind of adventure story about two sisters coming to London and having what became supernatural adventures involving diabolists yeah. and demon summoning and that sort of thing. Second one uh, did not use a single book as its template, but was it took place in Long Island in the 1920s, and there were big parties, so you have to think of Gatsby. This one is much more constrained and much more uh, a straight-up fantasy. And from a point of view of a writer thinking of a trilogy, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, because what struck me is, um, and I don't know if this was deliberate. Uh, if Molly, if you're listening, you can correct us. As a matter of fact, let's call Molly. Call not, I mean, not um, right now. Yeah, call call, call. Uh, I will do that. It seems to me the first two novels, the, the, the first two novels, involve what we would call mundane characters gradually discovering the extent of uh, demonology and uh, diabolism or whatever they call it. Uh, In other words, you realize that there's this vast supernatural world that people are trying to come in contact with. The third novel starts from the point of view of two young girls who are in that world, and they're discovering what the real world is like. (laughs) And it's a very clever reversal. I think some people might be disappointed because it doesn't follow the formula, but it upends the formula, and I love it when a writer of a trilogy doesn't simply write three parts of the same story, which is legitimate because that's a way of breaking something up for publishing reasons. But where somebody actually uses the trilogy, the novels in the trilogy, to talk to, talk to each other in, in, in an interesting yeah. way. The third thing that I'm reading, and I'm only in the middle of it, is a very strange thing. And if you can explain to me how it came about, uh, I would appreciate it. There is now a 256-page novel by Sushin Liu called Of Ants and Dragons. There was many years ago a novella, which I was able to track down, that was uh, published in China, and then years later that novella was translated. Uh, there was a collection of, of Sujin Liu's stories that was published. So that novella is there. Now there's this novel, which is exactly what you'd think. It's about a high-tech civilization developed by ants tens of millions of years ago, and the ants and the Dinosaurs, which also developed a high-tech civilization, or at least a tech civilization, tens of millions of years ago, become symbiotic. Um, the, in effect, uh, the ants become a kind of nanotechnology for the dinosaurs. And it's like... Um, I, I, I've got to be honest, it's, it's I thought like, that book, that you, the one you're talking about, I thought it was a short story collection. I thought it was too. It's a series of episodes in the history of ants and dinosaurs. <laughs> I don't know why it's funny, it's but I do. And very odd. Oh, excellent. I mean, so far there, so far there are virtually no yeah. characters in it. There are virtually very few dramatic scenes in it. There are intriguing scenes of pff, armies of ants digging yeah. particles of rotting flesh out of the cavity and teeth of dinosaurs. I know that's exactly what that sounds great. Well, look, so well that's so that's it, intriguing. It, it, we'll have fine. to check in see what what, what happens with it. But I don't know don't know where where it comes from to be honest. But it it will be interesting. But we should wind up. I've got a patio to sweep and a barbecue to get mm-hmm. ready for. It has been a pleasure as always. I will talk to you soon enough, and we'll do another seventy two thousand well, of these four minute podcasts, and <sighs> then we'll, we will get to the end of the pandemic. But but just to, just to reassure our listeners, the three that are remaining at the end of this hour, that every two weeks we'll be doing an actual podcast, sometimes with guests, yes. sometimes with the two of us. So yes. the Coon Street yes. podcast, in fact, on its biweekly schedule, is now, despite our little 10-minute podcasts, our regular podcasts are more on a schedule than they were for most of last oh, year. Oh, very much, yes. I mean, episode 400, Kate, which was the previous one. Uh, came out two, well, two, two weeks ago. We, we had a little hiccup there. We did, you know, we switched around because of crazy time, but life will occasionally impact on us. But yes, yeah. we are committed. There will be 26 fortnightly episodes of the Good Street podcast in 2020 and somewhere between 50 and 100 and whatever of the 10 minutes widths. I mean, we've got 50 10 minutes widths already mm-hmm. and we, we haven't stopped yet and we're still discussing. Nope. It is a work in progress in our minds as to what we're going to do with that format. But I don't think we're going to abandon it now. We just might morph it into something a bit more long term. 
we'll see what happens. One thing about it is that it's easy to do because so many of the people we want to talk to are actually at home these days. <laughs> yes, maybe we should have called it you know, at home with instead of 10 minutes with. At home Well, with, except absolutely. we're not. We're all socially all right. distant. Okay. Enjoy your socially distant wine. And when I get to my socially distant wine, I will raise it to you and to all of our listeners. If you're out there, a couple of quick shouts before we sign off. Please go off and rate us on one of those places where you rate us if you like us. And if you don't like us, well, you know, look, just just be kind, huh? If you are yeah. you know, realizing we're in hard times, everybody is, consider going to www.locusmag.com forward slash donate and supporting Locus Magazine. There are many uh, artists and creators out there who need support. Uh, one is Francesca Maiman, who, Maiman, who is a artist who works at Locus, and she has a new Patreon up at patreon.com forward slash Ms. Francesca. I'll put a link in the notes. It's M-I-Z-F-R-A-N-C-E-S-C-A. So please can, you know, go and have a look at the great things she's doing and support any artist whose work you appreciate at the moment. Excellent advice. And until two weeks from tonight or whenever you listen to one of our 10-minute podcasts, this has been the official hour-long Hood Street Podcast. Dear God, it has been, hasn't it? Oh, jeez, it has been. <laughs> <laughs>